Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello once again, and thanks for listening to The Next Track. This is episode number 29, which is brought to you by Drobo, a family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use storage arrays. Drobo's are designed to protect your important data forever. This holiday season, give someone a Drobo to keep all their files and memories safe forever. And keep listening for limited time details on how you can save a lot of dollars on your next purchase of a Drobo product. On this week's episode, we want to talk about tagging. Mmm, tagging. That's right. One of the most interesting things you do with your iTunes library. You spend hours and hours correcting typos and capitalization and adding artwork to make sure everything is just exactly right. And perhaps pulled some hair out or thrown mice through monitors. It happens. If you recognize that scenario, then you're one of us tag-obsessed people. Now, we'll talk about why people may be tag-obsessed in a minute, but what we're going to talk about today is what are tags? Why do you need to enter information to tags? How do they help you? What do you do with them? Where do you find the information? And how can you streamline this, notably using Doug's Apple scripts? But first, a quick primer. Now, back in the day, back in the Stone Age, when we had sound file formats that didn't have the ability to have metadata, you either knew what the sound file was by its file name, or you had to listen to it to figure it out. So when MP3s came along, uh, the ID3 tag spec was developed, and that decreed that 125 bytes be set aside inside of every MP3 so it could contain some information about the sound that was in the sound file. And in that 125 bytes, you could have 30 characters each for name, album, artist, and comments, four characters for the year, and one character for a single number for the genre. And that number corresponded to a genre name. So zero was blues, one was classic rock, two was country, three was dance, and so on. Right. And we, as we discussed in an earlier episode about genres, there were different lists of genres that didn't necessarily correspond. I'll link to that in the show notes so you can go back and find these original genre lists and, and see uh, also how they've changed over the years. So anyway, the V1 ID3 tag spec was pretty cool, but it was very limited. So then the V2 spec came along, and it completely changed how metadata could be stored in a compressed file. Instead of just 125 bytes, the metadata could contain any number of frames, and each frame could have 256 bytes each. So what exactly is a frame? A frame is a named piece of information in the metadata that can contain what we would call tag information. So there's a title frame, an album frame, an artist frame, and so on. And when a device or a piece of software wants to access information about a sound file, say to display information about it most likely, it has to know the name of the specific frame to look for. So most of this is standardized. Most MP3 and AAC encoders are able to write the title and the album and the artist and genre, and most players will recognize those tags. Right, so you're talking about the ID3 tags and you talked about MP3 players. iTunes essentially uses a variant of the ID3 tags. I think all music players today use some variant of the ID3 tags. Variant meaning iTunes does not use all the available tags. Right. There are lots of standard tags that aren't recognized by iTunes, but can be by other applications and devices like um, soloist, engineer, producer, publisher, stuff like that. And conversely, iTunes doesn't always write out the tag information that you apply in the app to a track back to the corresponding file. Some tags just stay in iTunes. Well, let's talk about that very quickly. iTunes does keep a fair amount of metadata in your iTunes library. So if you've applied certain of these tags to files in your iTunes library and you move them to another 
another version of iTunes, another computer, another um, program, you won't be able to see them. These are things like your rating, either a star rating or a loved or disliked rating. This is your play count, your last played date. This would be your equalizer settings, your uh, sorting tags, start stop times, media kind. And some of the video tags, I think, as well don't transfer. But when you think about it, most of these are actually personal tags. In my Take Control of iTunes book, that was a plug, by the way, I talk about home sharing, which is the way you can load a library that belongs to someone else on your network. So you could load your spouse's library or your child's library, vice versa. You don't really want to see their ratings and their play counts when you do this. And when you copy music from one of those libraries across using home sharing, you don't want to copy that information. You want to rate songs yourself. So there is a logic to this. However, there are times you might want to export files from iTunes from one computer, let's say at home to your computer at work, and retain the ratings and the play counts and all that. Now, you can't do that without some sort of complicated, you know, you could do smart playlists and you can make a smart playlist for five stars and four stars. However, if you use iCloud Music Library, then that information will stay in your library. So if you've got your iCloud Music Library and your music at home and your music at work, they'll both show this same information. And in those situations, the local iTunes isn't looking at the metadata of the individual files on the other machine to get information about them. The local iTunes is getting information about the track entries from the database of the other iTunes directly. So... Tags are useful in iTunes for a number of reasons. If you were to dump all of your music files in iTunes without any tags, you would just be playing in shuffle mode. You would have no idea what you're listening to. If you recognize a song or an artist, you'd know what it is. But if not, you would have no idea. So tags are really essential for you to know what you're listening to, also to find what you want to listen to. Now, I, I think we could make a, a minimum list of tags that you need to fill out, that you absolutely need to fill out to be able to use iTunes. For me, it would be the name tag or, or what's called the song tag in the latest version of iTunes because there are work tags. I, I don't think we'll discuss that on the show, but I'll put some links in the show notes about these work and movement tags for classical music. So at a minimum, I would want the name or song tag. I'd want the artist. I'd want the album. And for a lot of people, that's enough. A lot of people don't need more. My son, for instance, has a wide variety of music and he doesn't care what the genres are. So he'd never enter that information. For me, genres are important because if I'm looking for, say, some blues to listen to, I'll use the column browser and select blues and then drill down through different artists. But other than that, I don't think any tags are really essential, are they? No, because if you think about it, if you go back to the LP collection days... Um, that was all you had. You had the album, you had the artist, and you had the song name, and that's pretty much it, unless you subdivided your LP library into genres or something. Um, and I use genre year, track number, and disc number, and that's really any more, anything more than that I think is just too elaborate. Although the more tags you have, the easier it is to create smart playlists and locate tracks and things like that for special purposes. So you mentioned the keyword there is smart playlists, and that's where these tags become really useful in iTunes. Give an example. You want to listen to all your rock music in shuffle, and you don't want to listen to any Christmas music. You don't want to listen to any classical or anything like that. If you've got the genre filled in, then all you need to do is make a smart playlist that finds rock music. If you want to go even further, let's say you've entered the year tag for all of your music, which is a tedious process, but you want to listen to all your rock music from the 1960s. Well, you can do that with a smart playlist. Let's say you've rated 
all or some or most of your music. You want to listen to just your rock music from the 1960s that you've rated four or five stars. So each one of these additional tags gives you another condition in a smart playlist that you can use in order to narrow down your selection of music. You know, one of the things I hear from people is that they don't like to use smart playlists because it becomes tedious to create them and they don't like keeping them around because it just clutters up their playlist list. Uh, I consider smart playlists semi-temporary, so I use them really for sorting and for grabbing things really quickly and then getting rid of them. But you're right, creating the criteria for a, a complex smart playlist can be a pain. I have an app called Smarts, which is available on the Mac App Store, and it will enable you to export the smart criteria of a playlist and keep it in a little database so you don't have to keep it in iTunes. Whenever you want to create a, a complicated smart playlist, you can just haul in one of these that you saved and it's, it's, it's already done. I know, for instance, uh, I always start with no Christmas, no holiday, no spoken. You know, I'm always adding all the criteria in there. Uh, so this app, Smarts, will help you uh, manage your smart playlists and it's available at the Mac App Store. We are going to take a quick break. We'll come back and talk more about editing your tags in iTunes in just about a minute. Right now, I want to ask you about your data storage situation. Are you finding you can't fit everything on just one drive, or are you living in Spaghetti City with cables and power blocks and mismatching external drives cluttering things up? Would you like a simple and safe alternative to that? I recommend getting a Drobo. Drobo is a storage system that, first and foremost, keeps your data safe forever. Drobo uses a patented system called Beyond RAID that makes it easy to manage, protect, and expand your data storage. But Drobo is great to store your important family pictures and videos, your media collection. Hey, you're the family IT guy, right? Hook everyone up to your Drobo and their stuff stays safe forever. But here's an offer that won't last forever. From now until December 31st, our Next Track listeners can save 20% on the purchase of a Drobo 5D, Drobo 5DT, Drobo 5N, or any 8 or 12 drive system at drobostore.com using the code TNT20. That could be a savings of up to $800 depending on the purchase. Save 20% through the end of the year using the discount code TNT20 at drobostore.com. Drobo, simple to use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. If you're following along at home, you might want to open up iTunes and select a file and press Command-I. If you're on Windows, press Control-I. If you're using another app, find whatever keyboard shortcut or menu command displays the tagging interface for a single track. We'll talk about iTunes here, obviously, since you know we both work a lot with iTunes. But again, if you're not using iTunes, other players have similar things. So when you do that, you see a window that shows you a number of tabs. The first tab is marked Details, and, and here's where you see the basic tags song, artist, album, composer, genre, year, etc. On the next tab, you have artwork. Artwork is technically a tag. It's stored as part of the ID3 specification, right? Uh, yes. Artwork doesn't work exactly like the frames I described earlier, but image data can be stored in the metadata of a compressed file. Right. So artwork is really useful for those of us who are visual. I would say there's two really useful things about artwork. One is it allows me to scan a list of albums and say, oh, that's the King Crimson album I want to listen to. And two, it makes your library less drab. I recently wrote an article for Macworld pointing out how boring it is to see all those microphone icons in artist view. If you have an album with no artwork, you see these boring musical notes and you really can't, you can't see anything. You have no color. You have no contrast from one thing to another. 
iTunes can search for artwork automatically. Anything you download from the iTunes store comes with artwork. Anything you download from Apple Music comes with artwork. It's also important to realize that despite what we said a minute ago about files being able to um, contain image data, when you download stuff from Apple, the artwork is downloaded separately and stored in the album artwork folder so that iTunes manages it. The actual sound files don't contain any embedded image data in their metadata. Now, these image files in the album artwork folder are encoded, and they're not user serviceable, as it were. Right, and that's the case for files that you've purchased from the iTunes store, downloaded from Apple Music, or for artwork that's downloaded automatically when you've added tracks or ripped CDs. So you have an Apple script that can help with this. Yes, it's called re-embed artwork. And what it does is it takes the image data assigned to a particular track that you see in iTunes, and it embeds it in the track's files metadata so that essentially it can travel with the file. Well, one, one good reason to do this is if you export some files, say, onto a USB device to use in a car, the car would, should be able to read the artwork. Maybe some car systems don't. Well, some car systems and some hardware systems require that the artwork be a separate file. Usually it's named something like folder JPEG or cover JPEG. I have a script that will help you with that. It will export the artwork of a, a given set of tracks as folder JPEG or cover JPEG or whatever you want to name it so that these systems can uh, can read the artwork if, it if it's required to be a separate file. Another thing to note, too, is that as far as embedding artwork goes, only AAC, MP3, and Apple lossless files can accept uh, image data in their metadata. WAVE and AIF files can't. Now, they don't have the facility to store it when they're outside of iTunes or another player. But when you add into iTunes, this metadata is saved. But again, the problem, as we mentioned earlier, comes when you start to transfer files. A lot of this metadata is not portable. That is so. So... In order to add artwork, it's pretty simple. I, I mentioned earlier that if you select a track and press Command-I or Control-I, you see a dialog and you see a number of tabs. You can add artwork to a single track if you want, but there's a quicker way. And I think both of us were surprised recently to find from a number of correspondents that they don't realize that you can edit multiple tracks in iTunes. So if you select, say, 10 tracks all of an album and press Command-I, you get a slightly different dialog, and you can add the artwork there, and it applies that artwork to all the tracks. Now, this multiple track editing dialog doesn't let you edit all of the, the tags that the single track dialog does because you're not going to change the name for 10 tracks. But all of the tags that can apply to multiple tracks are editable like that. So if you're going to change an album name, if you're going to add artwork, you would want to do it in that multiple item edit window. Right. And it's not just for a single album. You could pick all the tracks that you want to change the genre for. For instance, if you've got a bunch of uh, 60s tracks and you want to say, well, these are British recordings, I'm going to call these British 60s, and you, you select 100, 200 tracks, open up the multi-item edit window, and just change the genre for all of them. So it's it's a very simple thing. And you're right. We, we are constantly surprised at the number of people who don't know that this facility is available on iTunes. A good way to make this multiple edit, D Doug's example there, you want to get all your 60s British rock and change the genre. A good way to do this is to create a playlist, just a normal playlist, call it anything. I, I keep a, a playlist I call temp in my iTunes library at all times. And, and it's my, I'm working on this for a while playlist. And you can scour your library and scan through it and drag tracks and albums into that playlist that meet whatever housekeeping you're doing, select them all and then make that change. And then after the changes are made, 
delete the tracks from the playlist or just delete the playlist. You don't need to keep it. Yeah, but I keep this playlist handy. And as long as we're talking about that sort of tagging, let's talk about ripping CDs. If you still rip CDs, and I think a number of our listeners do, when a CD mounts in iTunes, you can change a number of the tags, but you cannot add artwork. I tend to change the tags before I import the CD. So I look in the CD display, I select the tracks, I press Command-I, I change the album, the artist, the genre, and then I drag them to my temp playlist. I don't just click the import button that sticks them someplace that I have to search for. And when it gets in the temp playlist, I'll fix anything that I missed. Is it disc one of two? Do I need to add artwork? That sort of thing. I find it a really, really practical way to work with ripping. And in particular, let's say I'm ripping a box set of something and I don't want to have to put the artwork in the files immediately. I'll just put the CDs in, drag them to that playlist, spit the CDs out and keep doing that until I'm finished. Then when I have 20 minutes, I'll go on and finish the tagging. Yeah, it's it's really important to do the diligent tagging work right then and there when you rip because, you know, your head is in it. It, it takes so little time and you want to make sure that the tags are going to be helpful and, and look good over the next few years. You don't want to be housekeeping hundreds of tracks sometime in the future when you've decided to finally start using the album artist tag, you know? You just said something really, really important, something that's going to look good over the next few years. And, and I mentioned earlier that some of us are tag obsessed and everything has to be just exactly right. But when you think about it, if everything is not just exactly right, you'll have problems. You'll find something where the spelling's wrong, where the genre's not right. And if you're making smart playlists and you want to find all of your, you know, Rolling Stones albums and one of the albums says Rolling Steins or Rolling Stone without an S, you won't find them. A lot of people can listen to their music without that sort of tag obsession and OCD. But depending on how you work with your iTunes library, you might want to make sure that every time you add music to your iTunes library, you tag it right away. It's, it's really quick to do it for an album. It's really takes a long time to do it for 10 or 20,000 tracks years down the line. Probably a good time to mention that uh, Doug's Apple Scripts has lots of tools for manipulating tag data and playlists and things like that. Uh, I'm going to give you the link in the show notes to the Recommended by Task page, which lists a bunch of... Uh, scripts that are useful for common tagging tasks. So if we look again at these tag dialogues in iTunes, we talked about the details tag, we talked about artwork. The next one is lyrics. Now, you've been able to add lyrics to tracks in iTunes for a long time, but you haven't really been able to view them very easily. Now, if you click the Up Next button, and that's the button to the right of the iTunes LCD in the toolbar, you'll be able to see lyrics while they're playing. Now, iTunes can also search for lyrics, but you'll find that you'll have mixed results. Some of them it'll find lyrics for and some won't. Now, the problem with lyrics is it takes a long time to add them, a very long time. And there have been apps over the years that have done this fairly well or not very well, and I've never really found them to be excellent. I think the real question is how important are lyrics to you? I once spent a lot of time with an app that I believe is not developed anymore called Musics Match, M-U-S-I-X Match, that could add lyrics to things. And you would start playing a track, and if it found the lyrics, it would add them. And then you would just click Next to go to the next track. So I added lyrics for all my Bob Dylan songs back in the day. And it worked out really well. But then for some other songs, the lyrics were just terrible. There were typos. They came from, you know, some random um, crowdsource websites. I would like to see the day when iTunes and, and iOS devices as well can offer lyrics for most or all of the music. I don't think we're there yet because in my testing with this new lyrics feature, it's really hit or miss. But uh, lyrics are really important. I mean, come on, we've got a Nobel Prize winning songwriter. 
then you want to read the lyrics sometimes. Yeah, well, we've got this huge international web of intellectual property laws that keeps uh, lyrics off the internet. I mean, despite the fact that there are dozens, if not hundreds, of these uh, clickbait lyric sites that are around there, but they don't have authorization to publish the lyrics. I'm not exactly sure how Apple's doing this. I think it's Gracenote that's involved. I think there is a move in the music industry to sort of legitimize this and to organize it. Uh, there, there were some years ago, a bunch of lyric sites were shut down because of the question of intellectual property. I, I think this is getting better. And I think in particular, Apple's use of lyrics in iTunes shows this, but we're not there yet. Uh, recently, I searched for lyrics for a few tracks using Google you know, in my web browser. And the results I got came from the Google Play Store. So Google obviously highlights its lyrics first. And I'm guessing that those are good quality lyrics as opposed to, you know, the ones, as you say, the sort of clickbait uh, lyric sites. Yeah, I think as a streaming gets more popular, we'll start to see better lyric management. But I don't think you're going to see like a public domain database where you can just, you know, grab lyrics. I don't think that's going to happen. You can also check your favorite band websites. Bob Dylan has all his lyrics published on the website. The Grateful Dead has lyrics for all their songs, at least all the songs of which they have ownership because they did cover a number of songs. I don't know if the Rolling Stones do that, but, you know, look around. You you'll, you may find that if, if you're a big fan of a particular artist, you may find that they have a lot of lyrics on their website. So that's a good way to get them. Now, of course, the problem is that you need to manually copy this into each song, and it can be a long, long process. So you've got a way... You have to balance out the amount of time versus the usefulness of having the lyrics. And, you know, if, if you're one of those people who wants the lyrics listening to us, you know what it's like and you're going to want to do it. Let's move on to the options tab when you tag uh, files in iTunes. And we're going to just talk about music tags here because options for other files are a bit different. I don't think that there's anything really essential here. There are start and stop times. You can start a track not from the beginning. In other words, if you play a, a track in iTunes, let's say there's an introduction before the first track of a live concert and it goes on for 30 seconds, you can set the start to start at the point when the music starts rather than the introduction. You can set the stop to the time just before the applause starts, things like that. Other than that, there's not a lot of use for those. The remember playback position tag is really only useful for audiobooks where you want to stop listening and pick up when you come back. The remember playback position is automatically set for audiobooks when you get them from iTunes. So there's no way you can change that. So if you get an audiobook, that's remember playback position is is preset. Right. If you buy an audiobook from iTunes or Audible, but if you rip an, an audiobook CD, then you need to use that. And the skip when shuffling tag that doesn't seem to work very well. In fact, it doesn't work at all on iOS. It works in iTunes. And so I I have a lot of spoken word content and I put skip when shuffling on that on my classical music because if I'm shuffling, I don't want to hear classical music in shuffle mode. Unfortunately, there are some cases in iTunes where iTunes doesn't even recognize that. If you use the Genius Shuffle, Genius Shuffle is one of my favorite iTunes features. You press option or alt and space and iTunes basically just picks a track at random and then creates a sort of a genius playlist based on that track. So I'm going to do this live. In fact, this is good radio here. I'm in front of my iMac library, which has about 70,000 tracks. And this is no Apple music. All my Apple music is on my laptop. So I'm going to press option space. And iTunes just picked up a track by Radiohead called Reckoner from the In Ray Rainbows album. Now, if I click on the up next button to the right of the iTunes LCD, I can see that it also wants to play Iron and Wine, David Bowie, U2, Lou Reed, Led Zeppelin, Coldplay, New Order, 
So what it's done is, as I said, it picked a random track and it seeded a playlist. Now, if I do it again, it's just picked up a Jerry Garcia live track. What would come up after that? Well, some Bob Weir, some Allman Brothers, Hot Tuna, The Band. So Genius Shuffle is really cool because it's a shuffle my library, but based on one track. So it's going to be sort of similar genres. And if you don't like it, you just press that command again. It's like Pandora, actually. It's like if you don't really, if you're not doing any critical listening, and sometimes, let's admit, we all just say, I want to hear this right now. But if you just want some background music, I think Genius Shuffles is a great way to go. I use it a lot myself. So then we get to the sorting tags in iTunes. The sorting tags are tricky. They're, they're a little bit hard to understand. What they show you is the name, the album, the album artist, the artist, and the composer, and they tell you to sort as. Now, what what would be the best example of this, Doug? Give us a concrete example of, when, of how a sorting tag changes something. All right. Well, let's say you're looking at the column browser and you're looking at the list of artists and you notice that Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix show up sorted in the J's because that's what their name begins with. You really want them sorting someplace else. So what you would do is you would open up the Get Info window and go to their uh, sort as artist tag and change Jeff Beck to Beck comma Jeff and you would change Jimi Hendrix to Hendrix, Jimmy, and then they will sort correctly in the B's and the H's, respectively. Oh, and you don't have to worry about um, text that begins with the or a. By default, when iTunes sorts, let's say, the name of a band or an album, it drops the words like a, an, and the. So, for instance, in my artist list in rock, I'm seeing the band, then Bebop Deluxe, a little bit later The Clash, and then David Bowie. So it drops those words. You don't need to change those with the sorting tags. I've only used sorting tags for things with names like artist and composer. Here's an example for classical music. In my library, I sort composers by last name, comma, first name. So Bach, comma, Johann Sebastian. But if I wanted to see that name as Johann Sebastian Bach, yet still have it sorting in the Bs, then I would set that in the sorting tag as Johann Sebastian Bach as the composer, but Bach, comma, Johann Sebastian as the sort as tag below composer. Does that make sense? Sorting tags are confusing. Well, you know, this solves the age-old radio station argument. Where do you file Jethro Tull? Under T or under J? I think everybody would agree it goes under J. So you wouldn't use a sorting artist on Jethro Tull, but you would on Jeff Beck because Jeff Beck sorts in the Bs. And, and you may want to also make this change if you have music in other languages. I'm not sure how iTunes works, say, with German. I'm a big fan of German Leader. Does it drop the, the D and Dare in front of uh, tracks? I don't think it does. Well, if you're using a German system, yeah, but not uh, on... Right so, right, so my system is in English, so it probably ignores that. But if you're on a German system, it probably does that. So you may need to use the same thing with different languages. If you're in France, the le, la, le would be dropped, and you would have this in a number of languages. We. Oui. So we get to the final tab in this edit window, and, and this is a tab you see only for a single file, and it just says file. And what this does is it just gives you some information, and you can't change any of this information because this isn't th this is metadata about the file, such as the time, the type of file, the size, the bitrate, etc. It's physical information about the file you can't change anyway. So you've seen here how tagging can be important. You've seen how you can tag and the kinds of information you can add to your tags. It's really up to you if you want to spend the time. As I said earlier, it, depending on how you browse or if you use smart playlists, you may want to tag all of your music very precisely. And you may not want to bother. If you only have a small music library and you just care about artists, then you don't need to worry about it. If you have a big music library, I'm pretty sure you've already worried about this in the past. 
We'd like to thank this week's sponsor, Drobo. Simple to use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. And remember, from now until December 31st, Next Track listeners can save 20% on the purchase of select Drobo products at drobostore.com using the code TNT20. That's TNT20. You could save from $100 to $800, depending on the purchase, save 20% through the end of the year using the discount code TNT20 at drobostore.com. Kirk, what's your next track? So my next track this week is another box set. And since we've been talking about tagging, I think this is a good example of the type of purchase you might make where you'd really want to spend some time tagging. It is a set of box cantatas by the English Baroque soloist, the Monteverdi Choir and John Elliott Gardner. Box cantatas are religious works. They range from about... 15, 20 minutes to maybe 30, 35 minutes. They contain instrumental sections and sung sections with choirs and soloists. And there are roughly 200 of them. Uh, a lot of them were lost. In the year 2000, for the 250th anniversary of Bach's death, I believe, John Elliott Gardner and his band did a tour of the entire world, performing roughly three cantatas in every concert. And they did this for a whole year. It was They called it the Bach Cantata Pilgrimage. A couple years after that, Deutsche Grammophon started releasing individual recordings of these performances, and they stopped. I'm, I'm not sure the backstory, but Gardner bought the masters or got the masters back and created his own record label to sell these. And so he sold these in individual volumes. Most of them were two CDs, very attractive hardcover CD volumes. And last year, the... Uh, entire set was released as a box set, and it's really quite affordable. I'm looking on Amazon UK right now. It's 140 pounds. This is 56 CDs. I believe it's around $200 in the US. This is some of the most beautiful music I know of, and this is something I listen to quite often. I have several sets of box complete cantatas. Some people won't like this set. It's live recordings, and we did an episode in the past about the difference between live recordings and studio recordings. What they did is they recorded every single performance, but they also recorded the rehearsals. So in some cases, if something didn't sound great in the recording, they fell back on the rehearsals. But there are some glitches, as is the case with live concerts. I really love this set. I love the energy in this. And, and the price is really quite affordable for 56 CDs. So it's the complete cantatas by Bach, by John Elliott Gardner and his ensemble. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to this week? I have an embargo. I put on some albums and some artists. I'll run across them when I'm making a playlist or something, and I'll just skip over it. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. And I'll keep this up for years. I don't want to hear that. Well, the other day, I lifted the embargo on Lyle Lovett. I think it's been about 10 or 12 years that I've listened to any Lyle. So I'm uh, going for Lyle Lovett and his large band. It's his third album but his first of those really nice-sounding albums he put out in the early 90s. This is the one with Make It a Cheeseburger, which is actually called Here I Am. And it also has Stand By Your Man, which I always thought was a great version of the song. I know some people giggle about it. But what was like an anthem to fidelity for Tammy Wynette, he turns into a creepy, dire warning about being unrequited. Ladies, love your man, or he'll end up a pathetic chump like me. Good stuff. Great band, too. And, of course, the wonderful Francine Reed on vocal assistance. Lyle Lovett and his large band is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. 
If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.